please take your Bibles and open to 2 Samuel. Um, we're going to be looking at chapter 20, the end of chapter 21 and the end of chapter 23. Now, as I mentioned last week, as you're turning there, 2 Samuel 21 and 23, the end of both of those chapters. As I mentioned last week, we've entered into what is considered the epilogue or the last things of 2 Samuel with chapters 21 through 24. There are six episodes or carefully selected snapshots that give us vignettes of David's reign for the reader. Now, they're not chronological, but they're thematically organized. They're chosen specifically to help us get a big picture view of David's reign. If you remember, like the last eight chapters or so, it's been a lot of turmoil as the writers spent a lot of time on David and Bathsheba and the rebellion of Absalom and all of that. And now he's trying to wrap this up by showing you that for the most part over David's 40 reign, David's 40 years of reigning, that there were good things that were going on. Um, especially this, this, these last six snapshots give us a particular view of David's relationship to the Lord and to God's people. Now they're arranged in a literary structure called a chiasm or an X, okay? In this structure, if you take the top point and the bottom point of the X, Episodes 1 and 6 are thematically tied together. Episodes 2 and 5 are thematically tied together. And the climax is in the middle. Episodes 3 and 4 are the climax. And I know that drives Westerners crazy because the climax should be at the end. But in Hebrew literature, that's how they emphasize something by form, going from the outside to the middle and then back to the outside. Okay, So to recap... Last week, we looked at episodes 1 and 6, where we saw David acting as a royal judge and a priest as he dealt with, a national, as, as he dealt with national crises involving God's wrath and judgment for sin with a drought and a plague, right? Those episodes taught us that David couldn't fully deal with the holiness of God and the wrath of God for Israel. That that was a terrifying thing for David as king. He couldn't deal with it for himself. He was a faulty king. He was a faulty priest. But his coming descendant, Jesus, would be the only one who could rule and reign by taking God's wrath from his people forever. Okay? Now today, we're going to look at episodes 2 and 5, which are found at the ends of chapters 21 and 23 respectively. And they're connected by the theme of David's military conquest. So we saw David as judge and priest. Now we're going to look at, at, at David from a military perspective and how he had military victories that gave Israel peace. Okay, So um, David was a brilliant military tactician, but his success was also due to the very brave and loyal and skilled soldiers that were under his command and under the command of his generals that he had appointed. David's legacy as king, no matter how you think about David, right? We think about people from all different, all different viewpoints and vantage points. We try to put people in categories. David cannot be separated. David's legacy as king cannot be separated from those who fought alongside of him against Israel's enemies. So whatever peace and stability Israel had from the Philistines and the Jebusites and the Amalekites and the Amorites and any other ites that might be around, 
they came through David's military victories, okay? Now, it's only fitting, think about this here, this is on, it is only fitting that these two parallel sections provide a memorial, not for David or for his wives or for his children, but for his valiant soldiers. So this is like taking a walk through Arlington for Israel's history of the fighting men who stood beside David. So this section gives us a small window into their victories and heroic feats. This would make an incredible movie. Okay, so let's look at 2 Samuel 21 and then 23, and I'm going to pull out five big picture principles of David's military exploits and how that informs our view of God's kingdom. How this informs our view of God's kingdom, but it doesn't give us a, fully, a full picture as Jesus has not come, okay? So here we go, let's go to 2 Samuel chapter 21, we'll begin in verses 15 through 17 with this truth. God's kingdom will be protected. God's kingdom will be protected. Look at verses 15 through 17. It says there, There was war again between the Philistines and Israel. And David went down together with his servants, and they fought against the Philistines. And David grew weary. And Ishbi Benob, one of the descendants of the giants whose spear weighed more than 300 shekels of bronze, and who was armed with a new sword, thought to kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, came to his aid and attacked the Philistine and killed him. Then David's men swore to him, You shall no longer go out with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. Now, war with the Philistines was something that happened throughout David's reign. It was the, it was the charge of the king, right, to go, um, going back to King Saul, that God's king would go out before the army and defeat God's enemies. The Israelite threat was always in the background of Saul and David's administration. And here, we get a glimpse of David fighting the Philistines and leading out his men into battle. Now, most scholars put this episode late in David's reign as it appears that age had taken its toll on David's strength and stamina. So he's an older man going out to war here. And it is here in this one particular battle that this one particular Philistine, Philistine spots David weary and exhausted and moves in to kill him and most likely win the battle. And it is at this very last moment that Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, David's nephew, the brother of Joab, who was always throughout David's story, right beside David. It is here that he comes to David's rescue at just the right moment. It's like a scene from a movie we've seen a thousand times where the, where the, where the king or the general gets surrounded and he's about to be struck down, and then here comes the right-hand man out of nowhere, flipping and jumping over somebody and stabbing the guy in the back. It's an incredible scene, right? Um, we've, seen, we've seen this before. God tells good stories. My point here, though, is that God protects His kingdom at just the right time for His purposes. Now, this happens all over the Bible. I just want, you to, I just want to remind you of something. Just think, just think about this through the, through the lens of biblical history. God always seems to be able to take a dire do-or-die situ, do situation and protect his people, and secure their ultimate salvation by protecting his covenant. Just think back. 
What if Isaac had been killed on Mount Moriah? What if God did not stay the hand of Abraham and did not provide a ram in the thicket? The covenant promises would have ended. Or just think of Jacob, Isaac's son, when Jacob and Esau get into a tussle and Jacob steals the birthright and then Esau promises that he's going to kill Jacob. And the next time they meet, it looks like an army is marching out against Jacob and Jacob sends his little ones to the front hoping that they won't be killed by Esau and God changes Esau's heart. What if Esau had taken that into his own hands? Or think of Joseph. One of Jacob's own sons and his brothers who sell him into slavery. What if he would have been killed along the way? What if they would have had their, what if they would have had their way with him? Or Potiphar, if Potiphar's wife would have had her way with Joseph. Or think about Moses and the Egyptians. What if he would have simply been thrown into the Nile and not protected? The one who would deliver God's people from Egypt. Or here, Ishbi Banab, who fixes his gaze on David while he is still weary. What if Abishai is not right here at this particular moment? Listen, let us be reminded here that God's kingdom will be protected and it will not fail. Herod also one day in the future will fix his eyes on one little descendant of David in Bethlehem and he will murder all the little boys that are there from the age of one to four. What if he would have laid his hands on God's king? You see, this is what happens. You can be sure that number one, God's promises will not be thwarted simply because someone has a very large army and very large soldiers descended from giants. God always moves to preserve his seed and to protect his covenant. Listen, no matter who invades Israel or what other nations or governments plot or plan, God preserves his remnant and his promises will prevail. It is here that David's commanders make God, uh, they, they, I think it's interesting here that David's commanders take God's promises and they put it into practical effect. They go, David, we have a new policy. You're not going out into battle anymore because we're going to make sure the lamp of Israel is not quenched, that it will not be put out by God's enemies. Now let me compare this with Jesus' kingdom just for a second. God's, God's kingdom will be protected, but listen, unlike David, who had to physically fight real enemies against Israel and protect God's kingdom, Jesus came bringing a different kind of kingdom. It wasn't a kingdom of military conquest. No, no. It wasn't tied to a geographical uh, nation state or a place or time. Jesus said, "Come." Jesus came and said that my kingdom is not of this world. That we don't fight, fight against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces. And God will, in the midst of this, continue to preserve and protect his children. Jesus assured us that nothing can separate us from him or separate us from his love or snatch us out of his hand. And while David needs protecting in this moment in here to ensure God's promises move forward, Jesus needs no protection. Jesus needs no protection like David. His promises and purposes will always prevail. So number one, God, God's kingdom will be protected. Notice secondly that God's enemies will meet their end. This is another big principle. Look at verses 18 through 22 as the story continues. It says, and after this there was again war with the Philistines at Gob. Then Sibachai, the Hushishite, struck down Saph, who was one of the descendants of the giants. 
And there was again war with the Philistines at Gob, and Elhanan, the son of Jair Origem, the Bethlehemite, struck down Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. And again there was war, um, war with Gath, and there was a man of great stature, and had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in number, and he was also descended from the giants. And when he taunted Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shammai, David's brother, struck him down. These four were descended from giants in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. Now notice here that this episode shows us the size and the stature of God's enemies. Now these particular enemies mentioned here are said to be descended from the giants. They are called the Rephaim. And they are also mentioned all the way back in Genesis. Now, in fact, there is a valley extending from Jerusalem to the southwest that is called the Valley of the Rephaim, the Valley of the Giants, which is where most likely these Philistines, who were very large, lived. Now, these are the giants that probably made Israel fear when they probed the land with Joshua and said, we can't go in and capture the land, there are giants in the land. And then God made them wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Now, you see here that they are, these four giants are dispatched by David and his forces. Now, if you're reading along with me, you may notice a strange textual issue. We're told here that Elhanan, the Bethlehemite, struck down Goliath the Gittite. Y'all see a problem with that? Well, there's this other guy I know. His name is David. He struck down Goliath, the Gittite, back earlier when he was a shepherd boy. What do you make of that? What does that mean? David was also a Bethlehemite too. So apparently Bethlehemites have a good, rank, a good record against people named Goliath. So what do you do with this? Well, here's the issue, okay? Um, the, issue is, the issue is solved this way. Goliath isn't a name. It's a title. Okay, Goliath isn't a name, it's a title. It's the title of the Philistines' greatest hero at the moment. So they would battle it out, and whoever, whoever was the greatest soldier among the Philistines, he would be given the title Goliath and be given a weapon that symbolized his standing and title. So he carried a giant spear like, like a weaver's beam. So that title, Goliath, also came with recognition and a certain weapon. Um, so here... Just like the first Goliath that taunted Israel when David was just a shepherd boy visiting his brothers on the front lines, this next generation Goliath, or several of them, fully upgraded with extra fingers and toes, they also taunt Israel. He ridicules and despises God's people and king. The issue here is that to taunt God's king and God's people is to taunt God himself. In the same way that if you taunt my wife or kids, you will be taunting me. Now listen, Goli uh, David here, David sees this as the primary issue, and so does Jonathan, that this Philistine, this giant Philistine, is taunting God. Okay, David hears the taunts of Goliath back in, earlier in Samuel, and he says this, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And then David says to Goliath out on the field of battle, he says, you come to me with sword and spear and javelin. 
I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the army of Israel, whom you have defied. He says, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head and give the dead bodies and give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. That's what David says, you taunt God, you're taunting us, you're taunting God and God will have the last word. And here it's the same thing. It's Jonathan, David's nephew's turn, born to his older brother Shammai or Shammah. And he stares down this loudmouth Goliath and silences his taunts. Listen, that's the principle. The principle is here. God's enemies may rise in force all the time, at any moment, any time. God will have the last say. God's enemies will be put in their place. God and his people. Listen, God and his people still have their enemies. Satan and his minions are intent on killing, stealing, and destroying. But in the end, in the end, Jesus will have the last word. Jesus will return, and he will trample every foe underfoot, and every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. God's enemies will not have the last say. God will. That's what you see here in, the last, in these chapters. Third, notice the third truth is that God works through the means of his servants. Now flip over to chapter 23. Flip over to chapter 23, and let's look how God works through the means of his servants. Look at verses, 18 through, uh, verses uh, 8 through 12 here. David's mighty men. Remember, thematically, we went from episode 2, now we're in episode 5, thematically connected. He says, these are the names of the mighty men of, that David had. This is where we get some really cool war stories. He said, these are the names of the mighty men of whom David had. Josheb, Bas, Shibeth, a Tachamanite. He was chief of the three. He wielded his spear against 800 whom he killed at one time. That's pretty impressive. I mean, you know. I mean, I, I, mean, I could have got probably eight or 900, but that's impressive. All right? He says, and next to him among the three mighty men was Eliezer, the son of Dodo, son of Ahoi. He was with David when he defied the Philistines who were gathered there for the battle, and the men of Israel withdrew. He rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day, and the men returned after him only to strip the slain. And next to him was Shema, the son of Agi, the Hararite. And the Philistines gathered together at Lehi, and there was a plot of ground full of lentils. And the men fled from the Philistines, but he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines, and the Lord worked a great victory. Now this section lists, lists the three chief soldiers among David's men and among his fighting forces. These are called, all of these are called David's mighty men. And this list of mighty men, by the way, was changed and modified across David's reign as some died and some rose in the ranks through their feats and triumphs. And there are 37 actually mentioned in this chapter. We won't look at all of them. But here we're told how several of these men rose to be the mightiest of David's men. They had the greatest feats that were accomplished. And for, the first was Josheb Bashabeth, who used a spear to kill 800 in one battle. He stood his ground while all of Israel fled and retreated. 
and, and, and killed 800. And then Eliezer also on a different battle, he stood his ground while Israel was retreating and he fought so long and so hard that his hand spasmed to his sword. He could not let it go. Think of that. As all the rest of the men are fleeing, he takes his stand in this field of lentils and he's like, if you're going to get my boys, you've got to come through me. And he stays there and fights until he can't physically drop his sword. He, I also think that he likes lentils more than most. Um, you know, I don't know if y'all are crazy about lentils, but he wanted to protect the, the lentils. And he did his job. Now, these are incredible war stories. Incredible. This is what made these men legendary. But the key phrase is at the end of verse 10 and 12. Look what it says. After the end of those war stories, it says... The Lord brought about great victory. The Lord. The Lord brought about a great victory as one man killed 800 and the other defended the field. Now these men, hear me, these men were absolutely valiant and brave and loyal and fierce and effective. But the victory was worked through them by the Lord. This is why the Psalms are filled with phrases like, the horse is made ready for battle, but the battle belongs to the Lord. Yeah, you get the horse ready, but God gives the outcome. And some trust in horses and chariots, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. These men are simply instruments through whom the Lord worked to preserve and protect His people. Now this is what I want to say to us today. This same idea is what will be written over all of the lives of God's people. The victory belongs to the Lord. Yet not I, but Christ in me. It is not me, not to my name, not to us, not to us, O oh Lord, but to your name give glory. Listen, we need, to, we need to be saying the victory belongs to the Lord and may He be glorified. And let me just say also, this teaches us to be ready to be used. Listen, may God choose to use us according to His purposes and plans. May we all be ready, able, and prepared to stand in the field between the enemies and God's people and say, I will stand here, and whatever happens, may the Lord do what seems good to Him. May we all be instruments and vessels ready to be implemented for the work and will of our King, and may we all be willing to lay it all down and risk our lives for the, like these men here, for the sake of God's king and his kingdom. God works through the means of his servants. And then fourth, God honors those that honor his king. God honors those that honor his king. Look there at verses 13 through 17. This is one of my favorite stories in all of this chapter. Look what it says there. It says, And three of the thirty chief men went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam. And when a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim, the valley of giants, David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was at Bethlehem. And David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried and brought it to David. But he would not drink it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives 
Therefore they would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. Now I want to show you how God honors those that honors his king through two primary ways. First, we're told here that David is in a tough battle. He's in the cave of Adullam, and he's facing the Philistines in the valley of Rephaim. And David and his whole company are are incredibly thirsty because of a lack of a water supply. Listen, there's not a lot of water in caves, okay? So um, he's he's incredibly thirsty, and so his mind here wanders back to his childhood in Bethlehem and the best water he's ever had. You could think about this if you got nostalgic. The best water you ever had as a kid on a hot summer day the water hose out back that didn't taste like rubber. But your mind wanders here in these tough situations to more peaceful, more peaceful times. Times when life was better. And David here, his mind wanders back to where he drank often as a young carefree boy in Bethlehem. You can feel the nostalgia and the longing of his heart when he just bursts out with a yearning for this water. I don't think David is serious here. He doesn't give a command. Hey, you three guys, I want you to go 15 miles to Bethlehem, fight the Philistine garrison there, and bring me a flask of water from that well because if there's not, you know, the water that might be a mile downstream isn't as good. David is just expressing the longing of his heart. So we're told that these three men hear the longing of their king and they make this journey, burst through the garrison force, the garrison of Philistines, draw the water and go 15 miles back to David. 30 miles round trip. Philistines outside the cave, Philistines in Bethlehem, and these men go and do this. And when they return, to David's surprise, they say, David, here's the, here's the water. Here it is, from the well at Bethlehem beside the gate. And David, look what David says, he can't drink it. David says, notice what he says, he says, he poured it out to the Lord. He says, far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at risk of their lives? David here turns this act of devotion into worship. He turns this act of devotion to him into worship before the great king. Right? It is now a sacrifice to the Lord, not to David. Make no mistake, his men are not angry. His men are not angry and they don't pout and say, what do you mean you're not going to drink this? We went 30 miles to get you this water. They are astonished that their king would honor them this way. Do you see it? David is basically saying that the blood of his men belongs to the Lord. It doesn't belong to them. Shall I drink the blood of my men? Blood belongs to the Lord, not to me. David knew that this kind, that, that da- the blood of these men is more precious than David's thirst. He knew that this kind of love and devotion and loyalty could only, be, could only rightly belong to the real king. David doesn't deserve this kind of devotion. See, God here uses David to honor those that honored him. Now, second, we see this truth. If you were to take the rest of this list, which I can't preach, you you can see this truth that God honors those that honor his king by the very fact that this list of 37 men exists. You see, you might hate reading a long list of names, and I'm not going to, 
You may think it's, a bo- it's boring and a waste of time, but I want you to know that this list of 37 men teaches us that God is absolutely keen on lists, that he keeps them all over the Bible. God knows each one of these men personally and intimately down to the number of hairs on their heads. And for you that are bald, he knows how many you used to have. Okay? Listen, God intends for those that honor him to be honored. That's what all of these lists are about. Listen, you may not care about half of these names, but each one of these represents a person who is part of David's kingdom and fighting force. And God forgets not those that serve in his kingdom. That is good news. They will all be honored. Not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from his knowledge. Every one of the names of his children are written in his book. And one day you will want your name to be called on that list. You'll care about a list on that day. God honors those that honor his king. Listen, those that serve and honor Jesus as king will receive the honor and recognition of their king. Jesus, they will fall before him and cast their crowns and he will lift them up and say, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Lord. Your name will be called. God honors those that honor his king. And David, we get a small picture of that. And then finally, as I close, God's kingdom will be built on grace. God's kingdom will be built on grace. Not simply the feats of these men. I want you to look at, the, at, the, at verse 33 and 39, just two verses. Look at verse 33 and verse 39. In verse 33, you'll read the name right there. Am I in the right chapter? Sorry, it's the end of verse 34. The end of verse 34 right there, chapter 23, verse 34. It says there, it lists Eliam, the son of Ahithophel, the Gilonite. That's a mighty man of David. Eliam, the son of Ahithophel, the Gilonite. And then look at the last name, verse 39. Uriah the Hittite, 37 in all. Now, what do those two names mean? Well, Eliam is the son of Ahithophel, David's most trusted advisor. He's also the father of a woman named Bathsheba. Bathsheba's dad is one of David's mighty men that protected David in battle. And notice the last name on the list, Uriah the Hittite. Do you kind of see that? This list includes the names of those most affected by David's sin. This list shows us that the weakest part of David's kingdom is not these men. It's David himself. David could never escape his own sinfulness as king. Listen, Uriah is listed here as a mighty man who was murdered and betrayed by the very king he sought to protect. This again proves that David's kingdom is only a partial kingdom. And a kingdom that is only pointing ahead to the day when Jesus, his heir, will come. And unlike David, Jesus will choose to die in the place of those that betrayed him. That's what Jesus will do. He'll die for those that betrayed him. Jesus will offer grace full and free to those that do not deserve it. And this is the same grace that David receives. Uriah being listed here is proof of David's failure and proof of God's grace. And let me tell you something about God's grace and God's kingdom. God's grace cannot be bought. It cannot be earned. It cannot be deserved. It can only be received from Jesus by faith in his name. That's why the Bible says we are saved by grace. It is for it is by grace 
Through faith you have been saved. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So again, let me close this way. We see that God's kingdom here in these, two episodes, in these two episodes, God's kingdom will be protected. God's enemies will meet their end. God works through the means of his servants to obtain victory. God honors those that honor his king. And God's kingdom will be built on grace. Grace. God's grace. We're going to have a time of invitation I want to pray for us. Father, I pray you'll take the preaching of your word, apply it to our hearts. And Father, may we ultimately and longingly see King Jesus. And Father, may we follow him and serve him because of the grace we have received. Father, speak to us now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.